Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Time now for the College Football Inquirer with Dan Wetzel. Now I have to work for West Virginia this year. Let's <laughs> hope he's come back. <laughs> Them Dan didn't get his Pulitzer on the Iowa Water Expose, so he's back at it again this week. With SI's Pat Forty. It's not like last year when the, the schedule was a ransom note stitched together with just like, who can we play this week? <laughs> Here's Pat, Pete, and Dan. All right, welcome to the pod. Time to overreact. Pretty decent little uh, Saturday of action. Best remembered for the potential, might be the warning shot, that this season is not going to be as predictable playoff-wise as we suspected. Now, maybe, maybe not. The big favorites did not blow everybody out yesterday. We'll discuss Alabama beating Florida by two down the swamp. Really a good road win, but we're so accustomed to Florida uh, to Bama just crushing people. Clemson beats Georgia Tech by six, 14 to eight. Kind of weird game. There was a big uh, hour and a half weather delay. Oklahoma supposed to just absolutely annihilate their supposed rivals in Nebraska. Doesn't happen. 23-16. Ohio State, which already has a loss, so does Clemson. They beat Tulsa by three touchdowns, but... It was a it was a game in the fourth quarter and Tulsa stinks. So all of those things, <laughs> I mean, let's not beat around the bush. Tulsa's 0-3. Lost to an FCS team first week. Yeah, lost to UC Davis, right? They lost to UC lost Davis. Lost to Dan Hawkins. Yeah. UC We're not Davis. sure how good anyone is, but we know Tulsa stinks. Tulsa's <laughs> terrible. There, I mean, that's just bad. I mean, you could try to make some care. Well, I mean, look, you win at the swamp. You don't have to apologize for anything. Pete, we'll start with you. Thoughts on near miss Saturday there and what it means is, is this is this season going to be a little shaky? You know, we, we tend to just pencil everybody in near miss Saturday is a reminder of a confluence of things that we did not get in the 2020 pandemic. We did not really have home field advantage other than once at Texas A&M right during the 2020 season. And we did not have crowds affecting the game. And I think we saw at BYU, we definitely saw it at Cincinnati. I think we saw Alabama. And I mean, you can go you can go through the list of sputtering road favorites who, you know, either fell out like Coastal Carolina trailed Buffalo for a good majority of of that game. Virginia Tech went to West Virginia and fell on their fell on their face. There are a 
flurry of equalizing factors that exist and maybe got overlooked that uh, are hopefully going to make this season a, a little bit more uh, a little bit more unpredictable. And I do think when we look at the top, as the bottom is fortified by super seniors, we can't underestimate the fact that the top, if we still consider the Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama trio, they all at least have new quarterbacks, right? And none are going to be Trevor Lawrence, right? He was once a once a decade after after Andrew Luck. So I do think like that is a factor that just because some guy was a five star and he's got a fried chicken deal doesn't mean he's going to come in and go 20 for 23 every game. And so I uh, I really think that, you know, there there are some forces pushing the top down and pushing the bottom up that have kind of gotten that have kind of gotten us to this point. Yeah, I agree with you that uh, I mean, you, you certainly have watched the team so far. You don't see you don't see a super team. You don't see anybody that's been stem to stern dominant. And we're only talking three weeks so far. But I think uh, three weeks has been enough to see a lot of warts on a lot of teams, a lot of holes, a lot of shortcomings amongst at least the best teams. I agree with you about home field advantage rearing its head, which is a reason I give Penn State all the more credit for going to Wisconsin in week one and winning that game. Now, that I mean, they were fortunate to win, but they did win. They handled the atmosphere well enough to win that game. Uh, and I think that's going to play well for them as this season goes along. I do think... There were expectations placed on some of these young players, especially at places where they, you have been able to just plug in the next guy and watch them perform, and it ain't necessarily that easy. Look at Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma. Look at DJ Uyunglele at Clemson, and you see guys that are talented, but they're not able to just toy with defenses the way their predecessors were. And just because you're a talented guy surrounded by other talented guys, it's not necessarily going to be easy to just roll over teams. Uh, Bryce Young, who's, who's had many very good moments so far for Alabama, but he's not Mac Jones at this point. You look at it, and I think it, it is refreshing that we're sitting here in the second half of September saying, I really don't know. Like I, could, I can throw five teams out there, but I'm not sure any of them are head and shoulders above the next five. So it's it's. I think this is a lot of fun right now. I agree with that. I mean, I'm not sure that, you know, Penn State shouldn't be ranked higher based on their thing. Just different stuff. Uh, I know the poll just came out here. It, you know, it was it was it was just an interesting day. Let's let's talk a couple main results. Bama, Florida. You know, we rarely see Alabama tested the 99 yard TD drive. Florida had in the third quarter to cut it to 28-23. And then later, obviously, they get within two. That two-point conversion was just blown out by a really good play by Alabama. There was, you know, not a a great play call. Dan Mullen was upset. Bama still had time. They could have come down and won the game even if that got in. But thoughts on that game? I loved the uh, I love the running backs for Florida. Loved how hard they played. I love Florida's defense, particularly after their early just got crushed out of the gate early. I mean, you watch the first, you know, first half of the first quarter. I don't know. How quickly was it? 21-3 or 21-6 real quick. Uh, About looks as like long Bama's as we've gonna, been taping this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're going to crush them. But in the end, Alabama wins. Well, I was driving back from uh, Cincinnati, Indiana, where I was. So I actually listened to quite a bit of the game. And uh, it's always uh, it's always fun to uh you know on your way in or out of a stadium to kind of catch a little bit of the local flavor so i was listening on the sirius xm and they had the uh they had the florida broadcast you could almost tell from like the announcer's voice that they were surprised 
that this was uh, that that this was happening. I think from thirty thousand feet, because I wasn't watching every play. What my takeaway from that game is this: Florida's going to get better. Florida's defense has improved enough. That was obviously a shiv at times last year, which is why Florida couldn't overcome Alabama in the SEC championship. And obviously, they uh, they melted down at Texas A and M that day. It, it, if their defense is good enough. And then Anthony Richardson can either be a change of pace quarterback, a la Tim Tebow and Chris Leak in 2006, or he can emerge as the starter at some point over the next two months, essentially. You know, it could be a really stout Florida team by the time if they obviously can can get past Georgia and go to the uh, go to the SEC championship. So I think my main takeaway in the micro for Florida is that Georgia's not walking away with this with this thing like a lot of us might have thought walking out of the building in Charlotte that night. Florida, it's a compliment to Dan Mullen and uh, Todd Grantham, quite frankly, the defensive coordinator. They they built this thing up to twice now really go, be able to go toe to toe with Alabama, much more so than uh, the playoff foes really who faced uh, who faced Alabama recently. So I, I think again, there's no moral victories in the swamp, right? There's no uh, there's no good losses, but Florida certainly showed that it's not going to drop back as much as some of their personnel losses may have dictated entering the season. Yeah, the thing that j- jumped out to me, six yards a carry, 258 rushing yards for Florida. I guess the Nick Saban defense, are you kidding me? I mean, even the last couple of years when their defenses have not been as good as some of the others, they, they haven't done that. The last team I just looked it up to, to hit them for six yards or more per carry was Ohio State in the 2015-2014 playoff uh, when Ezekiel Elliott uh, ran all over them. So, I mean, that it does not happen often. So that's very impressive, yes, by Florida, for sure. And, you know, a, a potential warning sign for Alabama. That defense, I think we looked at it and said, oh, this is going to be more like a vintage Saban defense. But they got pushed around. That was pretty wild, really. And uh, I, yes, it, it, I think it does amp up the warning signals. Are I guess it gets the attention of the folks in Athens, Georgia, Pete, that the Bulldogs have have a worthy challenger in the East for sure. I think in Florida, and it'll be fun to see that rushing attack against Georgia's ridiculous defense, uh, which finally into the twelfth quarter of the season got around to giving up an offensive touchdown against South Carolina. So. Uh, that will be fun to see, but uh, you know, if you're if you're Saban, you've got a lot you've got to work on, uh, and he likes having those challenges and being able to keep people focused. But I mean, they got some some games that continue to look more and more interesting coming up. I mean, Ole Miss put up sixty one and three quarters. A and M's playing very good defense. Arkansas is a legit team. That SEC West, whoo, it's loaded. It's not a bad team in the SEC West. We talked about it last week. Just straight up, all seven. Someone's going to come in seventh. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know who Mississippi State did lose to Memphis. Maybe they're your, but you know, there's no shame in that. That's a good. Did you see the decent. kick return in that game? Yes, uh, oh, it was unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, Incredible. yeah, really smart. smart, smart, smart. Yeah, play. I can't say I know that rule like cold. Like if you touch it, somebody else can still pick it up. I would have, uh, I would have failed that special teams exam. Yeah, I say right. You can touch it, but you got to down it. You have to actually down the ball, stop it. I guess right. So. Very fascinating play. There also was a great onside kick that oh, Mississippi yeah. State had where they lined up basically two linemen next surrounding the kicker. The kicker kicked it straight ahead, <laughs> and these two dudes just plowed the <laughs> into him, and they got it. Really? And uh, I, maybe that's been done before. I hadn't seen it in th- that 
that way, like that dramatically. And uh, I was like, boy, that's that's smart because, you know, you're all hands team in ready for 280 pounds coming downhill right. on you. You know, <laughs> you try to catch a, little a bouncing ball. A little nervousness to the situation. <laughs> Number 68's running at you and you're trying to follow your eyes on a bouncing ball standing like, crouched down. Oh, no. Ah, uh, great play. I, that How many Tito's new... and soda and Key West did Mike Leach have before he drew that one up on the napkin? I mean, <laughs> pirate say nice play pirate. I got impressed with that. Um, all right, let's get to the other one. That was really a big game and, and, and get into a little bit of the big 10, uh, Penn state, you know, white out the whole thing. Very exciting game. Auburn made a, made a game of it, but Penn state, uh, wins 28, 20, scored their touchdown with uh, about 10 10 52 to go in the game and it just kind of wrote it out we mentioned earlier i already have a win at, at wisconsin they've got this sean clifford he, he's been up and down in his career well he's up to 28 to 32 for 280 two tds there was an interception uh they kind of got a running back by committee thing going could you know just a excellent win for for penn state if you're looking and saying hey ohio state little wobbly. You know, I think in the Big Ten East, Penn State, Michigan rolled again. Northern Illinois is not bad. They beat Georgia Tech. And a team Michigan rolled Western Michigan, just beat Pitt. Who knows? Still got a lot of work to do there. But Michigan, you can't start any better than they did. Michigan State goes and wins it at Miami. You know, Rutgers is looking at a big Michigan-Rutgers game this week. Big Ten East, which has been you know, put it down in blood for the Buckeyes forever. Real interesting. Let's start with Penn State. Your thoughts there, Pat? Uh, yeah, wonderful atmosphere, big time win, defense resilient. You know, coming up with plays in the red zone like they did against Wisconsin, and yeah, they've got some weapons. It's kind of fun to see what they're doing. Uh, Jahan Dotson is playing about as well as any receiver in the country. He had ten catches for seventy something yards, and I mean, some very impressive plays. And then uh, the tight end usage. I mean, they really use their tight ends. They had Pat Fryermuth last year. He went to the NFL, and he's really good. But the two guys they've got uh, that they were using, including in some as Wildcat quarterback situations, pretty creative usage of them. And, yeah, Sean Clifford just never worked with Kirk Scirocco at uh, offensive coordinator last year. I think it lost his confidence. Uh, but he looks like he's getting it back now. Mike Yersich, the offensive coordinator there. And they just there's a better mesh. Uh, in that on that side of it, but they've, they've got playmakers on offense. They've got playmakers on defense, and yes, they have a chance. Uh, the SEC or the Big Ten East is becoming much more interesting than it has been in many years. I yes, just as we were all talking about in August, can't wait for that uh, Michigan Rutgers game, which is actually <laughs> quite interesting. That game was was an excellent game last year. I believe it was the yeah. immortal Valentino Ambrosio who had the game winner lined up for Rutgers, the kicker who uh, who failed to make it. No fat cat or fat Daryl at the grease trucks for old Valentino that night. But the uh, yeah, the I would have to say Penn State is the favorite to win the Big Ten East right now. I think Ohio State is more talented. But look, you does anybody have two better wins than Penn State right now? I don't think so. Pat, I have yet to read your overnight top 10. Forgive me, I was tra I was traveling. So did you put them number one? I didn't, actually. Um, I, I kept Georgia number one. I have uh, Oregon two and Penn State three. I elevated Oregon because beating Fresno State looks better all the time. Sure. 
uh, yeah. and obviously going into the horseshoe. But I mean, you, to me, you could put any of those three, one, two, three, and uh, throw Alabama in there. There's your four in whatever order you want. Well, the actual AP poll right now, uh, Bama one, Georgia two, Oregon, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Iowa 5, Penn State 6, A&M 7, Cincinnati 8, Clemson 9, Ohio State 10. And then Florida, Notre Dame, Ole Miss, Iowa State, BYU. Uh, so they got them 6, but find me better a better resume than than Penn State right now. Well, yeah. I mean, it's three weeks, but. We've talked a little bit about uh, the home field advantage, right? Like, Indiana comes there in two weeks and it won't be a whiteout, but Indiana's got no chance just after after seeing them live. Um, you know what's going to be a, a a potential top seven game, maybe even top five game is Penn State at Iowa on October on October yes. 9th. I yes. mean that's going to be that's going to be a monster monster game. And then uh, Michigan goes to uh, goes to State College in mid November, which will have. Much higher stakes, I would think, oh, than catch uh, the ball. <laughs> oh no! Pat's Pat's watching the Broncos while taping this podcast. So yes, which our longtime listeners will know is always much more entertaining than the actual podcast. The Denver the, Broncos, yeah, yes, the Denver Broncos, not the yes. Western Michigan Broncos, yes, or the Boise State Although, ones. Yeah, yeah, the Boise State Broncos. Good job by Western Michigan beating Pitt. Yes, Boise fell one point short to Oklahoma State. Yeah, it's a good transition to just keep this Big Ten East thought. I talked to Western Michigan coach Tim Lester last night after their big win at Pitt. Uh, they have a quarterback named Caleb Elby who's going to be one of those really good Matt quarterbacks that we're going to remember for a long time. He had a he had a huge day uh, in Pittsburgh. But I asked him a little bit about Michigan at the end because they you know they obviously beat Pitt and they got they got trucked by Michigan. He said their biggest issue that day was that they just had no idea what defense Michigan was going to run because they had the new coordinator. And so by the time they kind of got in and adjusted to it, uh, it was a little bit too late. A lot of their offense is predicated on what the other defense is going to do. Anyway, what he said has been really the the difficult thing for opposing defenses for Mike McDonald, who came from the Ravens and is the new DC there, is that they really move Aiden Hutchinson, who's an All-American defensive end. He's one of the one of the five best defensive ends in the country. He'll be a first round pick, almost certain in the draft. They move him around a lot. Western Michigan wasn't ready for that. So it'll be interesting to see Northern Illinois, despite beating Georgia Tech, I don't think it's very good. Rocky Lombardi's their quarterback, so there's a ceiling there, obviously. Um, it'll be interesting to see how people do end up adjusting to that Michigan defense. But the one thing about the Don Brown defense was it was very good at one thing, and if it couldn't do that, it couldn't do anything, basically. And this new defense under Mike McDonald really looks like it has some versatility and some flexibility and adjustability which means that at the very least their bad isn't going to be as bad as it was under Don Brown. How about Michigan State? Yeah. Yeah. All I right. Mean, they go down to Miami. <laughs> Just a couple of weeks ago, Pat thought Miami would beat uh, Alabama. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I said they could cover. <laughs> I did not say they could beat Alabama. We're just making sure you're paying attention, Pat. All right. With just the glad, yeah. That's I'm intermittently me. paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, How about that. Miami and Florida State both got dump trucked yesterday by unranked teams, and it just really doesn't even register. Yeah, uh, Wake Forest beat them by twenty. Beat, beat Florida State by twenty-one at Wake Forest, and that was just given a complete shoulder shrug around the sport. Embarrassing day for those two programs. I, Florida State's in a lot of trouble. 
Miami probably is too. But look, Michigan State, three fourth quarter touchdowns. Another huge day by Kenneth Walker, third Wake Forest transfer. So the Wake Forest getting it done all over the state of Florida. Uh, I think he had 172 yards. Peyton Thorne is the Michigan State quarterback, 18 for 31, but four touchdowns. 18 for 31 with three sacks, but four touchdowns. Not bad. They're getting that done. Jalen Naylor with two TDs. This is my thing with Michigan State. They, this is Mel Tucker's second year. He took over a program that uh, I think I heard Mike Valenti, the great uh, Michigan State uh, fan and uh, Detroit radio uh, host, say uh, D'Antonio built the program, then destroyed it just all at once, just decided to destroy his own program, self-immolated the program. Like, nothing was expected at Michigan State this year. You know, we'll see where they end up, but they're 3-0, and and they're ranked. And Mel Tucker is, uh, you know, he, it's a lot of transfers. He's put this thing together, but I, this rebound of Michigan State may be a lot quicker than I think a lot of us thought. What D'Antonio got it to was was incredible but this is this is shaping up for a very good season they get nebraska at home next week then they get western kentucky rutgers at indiana you know not out of the question they are seven and oh when they host michigan uh halloween weekend yeah that would be instead most people i don't know what their over under win total was off season but it might have been three and a half so we'll see but Really, really impressive. They've got a road win in Northwestern and and they and a road win at Miami. Uh, terrific. So thoughts on Mel Tucker, Pat? Yeah, great. I mean, you know what? He he immediately addressed needs. They hit the transfer portal hard and productively, offense and defense, and they got some playmakers. Uh, they look very different. And Peyton Thorne has done a nice job of of not messing up. Right? You know, I mean, they they have avoided. Uh, he hadn't thrown an interception. I think they only have two turnovers on the year. They forced four turnovers from Miami, which if you're a plus four turnover margin, that's a good way to win by three touchdowns on the road. I, so, yeah, it's, it's really it's very interesting to me, and it would be so much more fun to have both them and Michigan, you know, back in the hunt and and amp up the stakes for that game. I did. I already circled that game on the, on the calendar just in – on the just-in-case list, the Michigan State-Michigan game because – uh, it's kind of intriguing the way they are both trending there. So yeah, it, I mean they're they're one of those teams that you're like, oh okay, uh, you you have my attention. How long can you keep it? I one thing I did not expect out of Michigan State this year is for them to dominate the fronts like they have. And look, a lot of teams went and hit the portal. And where I give Mel Tucker credit is he's hit the portal and hit on players. Uh, Kenneth Walker's averaging eight point six yards a carry. He's got five touchdowns. Um, okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's not it's pretty well uh, that, if you got that's, your lead back at an eight point six. Yeah, that's not bad. I will say the early sample size in the defense would have me a pinch concerned. Their total defense is 80th in the country right now, uh, 380 yards a game. That is just not the kind of territory you can hang out in if you're going to be seven and zero by then. So. I may not have quite as much optimism as you guys. I may want to see a little bit more. I also just don't think Miami's very good at this point, right? Like, just, I mean, App State played them to a tilt, and we have, we all on this podcast obviously have a lot of respect for App State. So, yeah, but that, all that said, you know, certainly you would expect them to be 5-0 and going to Rutgers, 
And it will it will be interesting to see if their road medal from already winning two road games. Again, we talked about how hard it is to win on the road could really help them when they go Rutgers, Indiana back to back. It was four and a half was the bet MGM uh, win total over under for Michigan State. And and like you said, you're expecting expecting five and oh. So, so that, if you if you took the over on the uh, on the Spartans, uh, you got to be feeling good. All right. You're I want to get by Columbus Day. Yeah, that's that's pretty nice. All right, let's let's tee up this Cincinnati game. It was a dogfight, pulled out late, 38-24. At the end of the day, you got a two-touchdown victory on the road against the Big Ten team that certainly was uh thought we thought a lot of. Both of you guys were there for that game. Uh since he gets a bye week and then Notre Dame coming. Uh, or they go to Notre Dame uh, in a couple weeks. I don't know what size drum Cincinnati has. <laughs> we don't know whether they'll be allowed in. We're going to get to the drum. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. We'll you know, it. everyone on this pod knows my love, or at least scorn for that enormous drum. I may be now <laughs> pro Notre Dame for banning that drum. That isn't the biggest in the world, <laughs> no matter what they say. Anyway, Pat, your thoughts on the uh, Bearcats, and uh, can they pull this off? I mean, I didn't see anything Saturday that says, no, they can't. Uh, I I didn't watch them and say, oh, my gosh, they can go beat Alabama. But they did certainly enough to win in front of the biggest non-conference crowd Indiana's had since 1987. Uh, I mean, it was a legitimate atmosphere, which at Indiana – is very rare, but they filled the seats and they were loud and they had a ton of student turnout. That's which always helps. So, and if they get a fit affected Cincinnati early, my gosh, their line, yeah, they couldn't commit enough penalties and, and Ritter was throwing things ball high for the first quarter. Uh, but then they got it going and they settled in like a, like a veteran team, like you would expect them to. And they're really, really good defensively. Very few busts. They cover well, they tackle well, they fill holes, uh, and and then they're really tough in the red zone. They, they stopped Indiana three times inside the 10. Ritter is a great talent. Uh, I mean, and when he's on and got it going, boy, he's really, really good because he can run, he can throw, he can do everything you want. He's smart. He's very driven. He's a winner. I, I am not in love with their offensive line. I'm not in love with their receivers. And they they don't have a whole lot of explosion capability in the running game at this point, I don't think. Now, maybe that changes, but for now, with Jerome Ford, who's who's a very serviceable back transfer from Alabama, they can grind out some yardage there, but I'm not sure they can they can gouge you and really make you change your defense with the running game. So but you look at the look at the way things set up. How good does Notre Dame look? We've been talking about these teams that are winning, but how good are they? They've they've wheezed by three straight op- opponents. Uh so if you're Cincinnati, you're saying Hell yeah, we can go into Notre Dame and win that game. Why not? You know, Notre Dame's got it. First, they got West or Wisconsin. They've got to get past in Chicago next week. Now, you get past that and into Conference USA. I'm sorry, gosh, uh, into American Athletic Conference play. And that just shows your age, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> it shows that I am distracted by the damn Broncos. But um, they, you, you get into the, the, the AAC. Central Florida's lost Dylan Gabriel for no who knows how long. Maybe for the season, maybe for two months, broken clavicle. Memphis, yes, a, a legitimate challenger probably, but they could run through that conference. And if you get to 12-0, 13-0, and you've won at Indiana, and you've won at Notre Dame, you're going to have a shot. I spent a majority of last week with the uh, with the Bearcat team for an all-access story that'll run 
next week on Yahoo. So it'll go the week going into uh, going into Notre Dame and uh, had all access, went to all the meetings. It was really I've done a few of those stories in my career. Dan, I'm sure you've done them. Pat, I know you've done them with football. Programs. You really learn a lot. Like first, the first thing you learn is you learn how much you don't know about football because you sit in those meetings and it's just like, you know, Gino Gadouli and Desmond Ritter might as well be speaking Mandarin. You'd probably understand it better than the uh, than the play calls. But it was a really interesting peak at Cincinnati at a really interesting time. There, People around that program don't hesitate to say the Notre Dame game is going to be the biggest game in school history. Now, they could still lose. I mean, there's a good chance Cincinnati's favored in that game, which is which is crazy to, you know, to think about to think about Cincinnati. And I, it's just a really cool moment for that place in that school. And, you know, Cincinnati's a place where, you know, the coaches who've been at Cincinnati over the years, you know, forget the Brian Kellys and the Butch Joneses, but John Harbaugh was there for years. Mike Tomlin coached. Like, it's a place people stop through. What Cincinnati's building now this season, combined with the confluence of the Big 12, really gives it a chance to maybe be a destination. And so, Credit to Luke Fickle for 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 building all this and, and getting it to that point. And I mean, Cincinnati played just as miserable as you could possibly play on offense to start that game. I think they had five straight three and outs to open the game. And I think there were pre-snap penalties on four of them. And it was interesting to see the demeanor of that team. They didn't flinch. They didn't, uh, as Luke Fickle pointed out, at halftime, they did not carp at each other on the sidelines. They, they didn't, they kind of, they took on Fickle's personality a little bit. So again, biased from recency and biased from just proximity of being around them for a week, but they're, they're an impressive group and they are, you know, there's a reasonable estimation that eight players will get drafted off that team. I would think six, seven with some certainty. So this isn't like some goofy scheme. This isn't anything. I agree with Path offensive line, which along with the false starts, is not of the caliber of who they will be facing in a playoff-type game. It can get better. Their right guard was out with Mono. Um, so, you know, they're, they they do have the potential to grow some there. But that certainly – one of the coaches did make a good point to me yesterday. He said all the a lot of guys from Georgia opted out for that game where Cincinnati led for most of the game and, and, nearly, and nearly beat Georgia. I think Georgia kicked up, you know, in the final 30 seconds. Uh, just took the lead for the first time, but – uh, it was one of the offensive coaches. He was like, all those dudes who played against Clemson played against us last year. So there is a confidence of we have played what is considered to be the top, and we have we have certainly gone nose-to-nose with them. So I really think starting with that Notre Dame game, do we take Cincinnati seriously? Is Cincinnati a factor? Becomes a loud conversation. And everything Cincinnati has needed to happen so far has happened to give them a chance to do this. And as we know from tracking the – Utah's, the Boise's, the the Cincinnati's under Kelly, uh, UCF, the Saboteurs, the you know the the outsiders trying to get inside. I know I'm forgetting somebody. TCU. That everything kind of has to line up and go right, and you need the schedule. And and it's pretty cool that we're going to be sitting there in early October, and Cincinnati's got a chance. And it goes to what we started with: is there could be some chaos at the top that makes people open it up. Okay, so Notre Dame remains one of the potential saboteurs obviously we've seen them in the playoffs numerous times they're three and oh they did beat purdue but i don't think uh i don't think we have spent a lot of time talking about they, they don't look great they kind of look to me exactly what we thought would be like maybe the 12th best team in the country or something but they are three and oh and that does set up uh, potentially a really big game they're playing wisconsin though this week they are entering a stretch where they can prove it they have their opportunity but i do want to get to the drum because this is a big story <laughs> 
It's a yeah, big drum. drum. It's a big drum and it's a big store. By the way, Cincinnati, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut off with dr- tangent drum talk. Cincinnati has a celebratory drum. So like Alec Pierce made that great touchdown catch on the side of the end zone, and he goes over to the sideline and he bangs a drum six times. I don't actually know the name of the drum because I'm a terrible reporter, but I'll, I will find that out from one of the fine people in Cincinnati. But they actually have a celebratory, like it's like their version of the uh, turnover chain. Um, they Pierce bang goes, the drum. They bang the drum six times. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I, I think it was Trey Tucker who returned the kick. He was like bang the drum, celebrating. Then he was like very meticulous, hanging up the drum stick that he bang. It was like a very funny moment. He was like, oh, gotta make sure I put this drumstick right back on, right back on the perfect place. So, anyway, g- carry on your drum. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. I, I mean, you know, it's a hundred years old now. The Purdue drum. Uh, I did. I did some research. Uh, they they designed it to create excitement across the Midwest. We brought this enormous drum <laughs> places. And uh, for a hundred years. a very Midwestern thing to do. Really is. The drum factory is in Indianapolis. Uh, Ulysses Leedy, he made the drum. The Leedy Corporation of Indianapolis. I don't know if they still exist. At the time, advertised themselves as the largest drum factory in the world. We'll take take their word for it. He said, uh, Leedy said when they finished the, the enormous uh, drum, uh, which is they, they're refusing to say what the perfect dynamic, I don't know, whatever. There's a lot of mystery cloaked in this. But when it was first tested, the drum factory, when the big drum was first tested out, it's from the Indianapolis Star in 1921. The volume was so deep that the good housewives of Indianapolis thought it was thunder <laughs> and rushed to take their clothes in from the lines. <laughs> Dan didn't get his Pulitzer on the Iowa water expose. So he's back at it again this week. This is the next, the next deep dive from Dan Wetzel on the muck It really is. <laughs> so then the university of Chicago said, no, we will make a bigger drum. So they made <laughs> a big drum, but it, really? they could not prove that they were bigger. And then they dropped football. So they sold their drum, big Bertha to Texas. They Texas sold their drum. drum to Texas. Yeah. University <laughs> of Texas has that big drum. And it's actually the University of Chicago's drum. <laughs> There's a whole big drum world out there. You guys don't even know. Apparently about. so. Now, here's my like our, but, our big, our big not drums, the world's biggest drum. Are, are big drums like stadium cups where they just never fall apart? I mean, I you don't keep know. them forever. A, if this is a hundred year old drum, I guess so. It's a well-made drum. Yeah, I mean, I think you have well to made. tune a drum like you tune a piano, right? I, I mean, I don't, I'm not an acoustic <laughs> expert, but I just I think you can beat something forever, and it, there's nowhere and tear, and the acoustics are the same. <laughs> it does need to be repaired at on dyne, uh, at different times. Okay, President Harry Truman once hit the drum. Did he? Yes, astronauts Gus Grissom and Neil Armstrong. Gus Grissom from Mitchell, Indiana. So it makes sense. Yes. So there's a big debate between who's got Purdue or Texas, who's got the biggest drum. But there's much bigger drums in Korea and, and, and uh, in Germany. And Purdue tries to not acknowledge these people. So let's get to the drum situation. <laughs> Notre Dame says, hell no, you ain't bringing your drum in our stadium. There's only one way into Notre Dame Stadium, one tunnel, and they, they restricted access. Uh, the drum cannot fit any other way. And they said part of the reason was their game day protocols and COVID. COVID. The drum had COVID. Well, yeah. <laughs> what does the drum have to do with COVID? <laughs> COVID you killed don't the know. drum. <laughs> the drum had COVID. Okay. And they would not let the drum. So they had to prop this thing outside the stadium. So we're going to people's court. Real quick, people's court. Okay. Because this is clearly an aside. 
<laughs> uh, no, this is mainstream for us. <laughs> Should Notre Dame have let that drum get in the stadium or did Notre Dame do the right thing? Not just in saying, screw you and your big fake, not really the biggest drum in the world, but also to prevent the spread of COVID, which we are all in favor of. <laughs> <laughs> Judge 40. No, that's a, that's a complete cop out because they were scared of the drum. They were, they were intimidated <laughs> by it. They, find out, they bring that big old thing in there and all of a sudden Purdue gets more chesty and Brom goes over and like sticks his head through the thing to fire him up. And no, I, I mean, they, this was clearly Notre Dame being scared. This was not COVID prevention protocol, Dan Wetzel. <laughs> Pete? I, I always like to picture like the meeting in the athletic department in the windowless room with like eight associate ADs sitting around the table when they make the drum decision. Uh, do you want to call <laughs> Purdue and tell him? Do you want to call Purdue and tell him? <laughs> I would think if it was COVID as an excuse, I guess you can't PCR test a drum, but it got so much attention. They brought the drum outside the stadium. People would gather around the drum and that would be worse than bringing the drum in the stadium. So I think uh, I think Notre Dame is trying to do some gamesmanship a little bit. They're like, well, if you can bring Drew Brees in the NBC booth, you can't bring the drum too. That's like too many institutions <laughs> of Purdue in one place. So yeah, I credit the uh, I credit the pencil pusher, uh, like third associate deputy AD at Notre Dame for uh, for for bringing it. I bet it was like sent in a terse short email. This, I mean, this is, this is some serious Indiana bitterness. Oh yeah, there. Do you think Mitch Daniels called, uh, who's the Purdue oh. president? Do you think he called Father Jenkins? Like, do you think the drum went to that level? Did the, did the drum go drum go presidential? That's a good question. I, yeah. I predict yes because Mitch Daniels is a is a politician, and this is a very political situation. So <laughs> oh, nothing, yes. nothing, nothing gets the vote out like like insulting the drum. <laughs> you do not insult our drum. That's right. Lots and lots of talk about Cincinnati as a potential playoff team. But how about this one? BYU. Mm -hmm. Now, they are currently 3-0 and in the Pac-12. So they, do they yeah. have a shot at winning the Pac-12? I don't know. And they still play USC. But BYU. Can I just complain that they didn't annihilate Arizona by more when they were my lock of the week when <laughs> Arizona lost to Northern Arizona? And yeah. Nor Northern Arizona assistant coaches, according to Michael Lev on Twitter, were getting chesty like taking all of uh, Jed Fish's hashtags and screaming them in the press box uh, after the game. We run this state. It's personal. Whoa. So like, so like that, so th th think you're like that like wide receivers coach at Northern Arizona and you've seen all this social media stuff. And then you, you pull the upset in Tucson, which is great. I mean, it's like a career making changing move and you run through that big press box in Tucson and you just like mock your opposite. That had to feel good. Somewhere in uh, somewhere in Tucson, late on late on Saturday night for Northern Arizona, but I'm still mad at BYU for not uh, for not living up to my lock of the week. All right, well they still won. BYU no, has a road win that. at Arizona, home wins against Utah and Arizona State. They are three and zero. They look really good. I don't know if they can pull this off, but they get South Florida and Utah State. Then they play Boise, which has lost two games, but it's still a good team that barely lost Oklahoma State. Then they get Baylor, Washington State, Virginia, Idaho State, Georgia Southern, and USC. They could have seven victories. And I know it's still September and I'm already crowning them undefeated. But they would have seven victories over Power 5 schools. None of those seem impossible. 
I'm not sure they're not favored in all of those games at this point. BYU is a playoff team. Buy or sell? Well, as much as I have liked watching BYU play and like the story, I will sell. Uh, I, I agree the schedule does give them a chance. You know, I mean, they're going to keep playing some pretty good opponents and getting some opportunities. It's not like last year when the, the schedule was a ransom note stitched together with just like, who can we play this week? <laughs> you know, but I mean, they, they've, they, they've got a chance. But here's the problem, Dan and Pete. They're giving up 6.1 yards per play. I mean, they're pretty fortunate to be three and zero at that with something like that. I mean, if Arizona State weren't wildly inept, as Sully will tell us, having picked the Sun Devils in that game, uh, that could have ended differently. But we'll talk more about that game, I'm sure, here in various form and fashion. But uh, I, I think that there are holes in BYU that will probably be exploited eventually. I'm going to buy on chaos theory, but. I hope the committee, and we definitely have committee members who listen to this fair podcast, like you have to look at them completely different. They're ranked 15 in the AP poll now. Now, look, I went to bed before the BYU game finished last night. Uh, I didn't really flight this morning. So like BYU's 3-0 and is much better than Notre Dame's 3-0. and uh, BYU's 3-0 and is much better than Iowa State's 2-1. and I, I just think they are underranked right now. And so I'm buying it because I want the story and I'm buying it because I think some traffic will clear in front of them. But they would need to start the rankings within striking position. And that's the difference between them and Cincinnati. Cincinnati had you also of all the things, the confluence of things that have to happen to be an outside antagonist and have a shot. You have to be really good the year before and start in a position. Because even though BYU has a late game at USC, it's just hard to make up ground when you're not in a power conference. Game against Arizona was in Nevada, I think, in Las Vegas. It was. That right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Here's my thing. That resume is probably going to be, let's say Cincinnati and BYU both make it to all the way. BYU's resume may be better than Cincinnati's. Might I mean, be. Right in, I mean, it'll be interesting. And now imagine if they're both in the conference. Like, they don't want to put one of these teams in. <laughs> what if everybody loses? And they're like, ah, yeah. uh, well, what if, yeah. they took care of that last year, though, too. I mean, you know, that you had Cincinnati that they had to, you know, they had to work it to keep Cincinnati out. But they absolutely firewalled Coastal Carolina to keep them out, out of the top 10, you know. But Coastal Carolina is in the, like, this is set. They could have seven. I know. Seven wins. It's pretty dang good. I mean, how many? The average team's only playing eight or nine. So even the good team. I I just, uh, I don't know. Very, very good team. They're solid. They keep winning. They're going to make themselves impossible to ignore. Uh, And, you know, I don't know. But, yeah, they do not. They want no part. And they can't do what. They'll they'll try that. Like, remember they used to put, like, TCU and Boise and make them play each other in a bowl. (laughs) Yeah. The little kid's table. You know, you guys go over here and have fun. Yeah. We like to hand out the Heisman every week. We don't want to wait to the end of the year. So we hand out the small sample Heisman, and here it is. Hello, record book. Hello, small sample Heisman. How about that? My small sample Heisman, there were two, the two guys that absolutely made my night for me. And it was one of those great after dark nights where there's just stuff happening between midnight and 2 a.m. that was just so fun. 
And the, there were two things, two separate things, and I'll get to both of them. Or the, by some combination, we will get to both of them. But my small sample Heisman is absolutely Jake Hayner of Fresno State. My God, what a performance from him uh, in beating UCLA. Played really well in helping stake them to a 26-17 lead. Uh, then he commits a fumble that turns into a 40-yard loss that is a, basically a game-changer. Uh, and turns things back the other way. Uh, UCLA comes back and takes the lead. Jake Hayner leads them down to score, and they take the lead again, and then UCLA scores again, and then he's got to do it one more time. And along the way, at the end of the drive before that, he injured himself, and I don't know. I haven't read read up yet today. Was it hip, rib, kidney? You know, I, I I don't know, lacerated spleen, whatever happened to him, it hurt, man. It hurt. He was on the sideline in a lot of pain, and he didn't want to have to go back out there and try to win the game, but he did. And after every throw, he was just grabbing himself and wincing uh, and limping because he was playing through a lot, and he got them back down the field. It certainly helped. He knew every throw was going to hurt. Now, he also knew that everybody was going to be open because UCLA's pass defense is so stinking bad, but he had to make the throws, and he got him back down for the winning touchdown. Jack Hain Jake Hainer, 39 of 53, 455 yards, two TDs, playing hurt, looked like Byron Leftwich out there getting carried down the field. Small sample Heisman, baby. I did not see Spleen getting mentioned. <laughs> yeah. You never know. You never know, though. Yes, you never we like know. Jake Hayner. Hey. We think he's very good. We hope he's very healthy, especially Patton. his spleen, but everything else. Yeah. Wow, that was a that Fresno uh, victory was. Uh, they're good. They're a good great team. Game. That's the second time I won with them this year. And you see, yeah, that was no. a great pick there, baby. Great pick. No, no. yep. Uh, all right, Pete. Who are you giving the Heisman to? Uh, I thought Pat was going to do this, so I had actually looked for another one, but I cannot overlook the all-time hustle play of Tyler Algier of BYU. He had a nice night around the ball. He's a good back. He's an NFL prospect. He had 21 carries for 69 yards. He had a TD in BYU's, uh, I, I would call it a win, but they really just witnessed Arizona State self-destruct 27-17. Arizona State had something like 15 penalties in the uh, in the game. But there was, a, uh, there was a pick six where BYU quarterback Jaron Hall just threw a complete knucklehead pass. Like it was as bad of a throw, as bad of a decision as you could possibly make. He's running to his left, he's under pressure, and he basically just flips a ball to Arizona State's Merlin Robertson. And Merlin Robertson is rumbling, bumbling, stumbling down the, down the sideline. And you think when he intercepts it, he's gonna score. And Algier comes out of nowhere, leaps up, Punches the ball out. Did he recover it too? No, uh, Hall no. recovered it. Hall recovered it. That's right. It was it was like something out of a Marvel comic. Like it looked like BYU ran the let's chase a guy down and punch the ball out drill every day for the last three years. And that's how like polished, poised, he was decisive about it. Sometimes you see these offensive guys, they're kind of flailing and they think they can get the no. He ran like you could tell he was like reaching his arm up and then he just comes through. It was as remarkable and as important of a play as you'll see. So Arizona State, I believe, could have taken the lead if they scored there. 
it would have changed momentum completely. Yeah, Sully was watching with a uh, with a very keen eye on that. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, he he not only deserves a small sample Heisman, he also deserves to like be able to rip open his uniform and have an S on his chest. It was just a remarkable, just a fun fun play. My favorite play of the season so far. All right, I'm going to give my small sample Heisman to freshman, true freshman from Valdosta, Georgia, Jalen Alderman of the Louisville Cardinals. What a game Friday night between Louisville and UCF. Look, uh, we had obviously saw the highlights, but 35-35. Traymon Morris brash of UCF makes this incredible bat down and pick of Malik Cunningham. The the Louisville quarterback looks like UCF is going to go in to win. Uh, win the game at the end. Dramatic play. And then Dylan Gabriel throws a pick to Jalen Alderman, and he takes it 66 yards for the score. Virtually a walk-off pick for a lineman. Absolutely phenomenal UCF-Louisville game on Friday night. So much fun. Nothing better than when everyone's watching one game. You know, you don't get the biggest ratings on some of those, but, every, you know, just such a fun thing. Wild game. I love this this series. I hope they keep playing. Jalen Alderman, huge play. Uh, you're not expecting your linebacker to make the walk-off, near walk-off touchdown. Jason Benetti, uh, who did the game for ESPN, had a great line uh, impromptu on that. He, I believe he said something to the effect of Alderman for mayor. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. I was there, and it was, I mean, one of those plays. I mean, first, yeah, like the back-to-back, tipped interception plays that both of them looked like they were going to win the game. But the the shock that that registered and the, the like Louisville's fan base is as beaten down as they can be. And they thought they were going to lose that game. And to win and to win that way, that, that one play swung a lot of people's moods around uh, within the city. And just watching, I was watching Central Florida afterwards because I was down there to see how badly hurt Dylan Gabriel was. And I mean, what a gut punch! For they thought they were walking out of their three and zero. Instead, they leave two and one, and their quarterback's done for a long time. Uh, it, it was it was a a season twisting play for sure. Does anyone play more wild games than Gus Malzahn? Like it's it's like in his contract, there have to be these whiplash insane yeah. oh, God. finish. Isn't that like the it's truth? like oh. it just it just at Auburn, it was you know they could be playing Arkansas, they could play in Alabama, whatever it was. Like the, Gus Malzahn always finds himself in these insane games. So God bless him for it. I, I mean, it was unbelievable theater. That was as good of a game as there was this weekend. But it's just, uh, I was just laughing, being like, of course, it's Gus in the middle of this just bizarreness. All right. We said a lot of mean things on this podcast, as we tend to do. This is our challenge each week. Can we say something nice? Pete, can you say something nice about anybody? I'm going to say something nice about Jackson Dart. The USC backup, who may become the USC starter in the near future. Uh, Keaton Slovis injured his neck in the first series of the game. And Jackson Dart, a highly recruited player out of Utah, who's considered the most naturally gifted quarterback on the roster, came in. And much like a quarterback named after someone in the All-American, he played like he was in the All-American. He had completed 30 of 46 passes. He had four touchdowns. He had two interceptions. He himself got a little dinged up. And the other impossibly perfect USC quarterback named Miller Moss actually had to come in for a few snaps as the third string quarterback. But Jackson Dart entered the USC universe in a very similar way that Keaton Slovis did because of an injury to JT Daniels a few years back. Now with Slovis out, new coach Dante Williams, the interim coach after Clay Elton's firing, is looking for a little bit of juice. 
Does he ride Jackson to try to build a little bit of a new identity on the team and uh, push USC on a new path forward? That will be the drama in Los Angeles this week. But Jackson Dart, nice job, young man. You lived up to your very cool name. Pat, you got anything nice to say? I do. Uh, my new favorite coach in America, really a guy, he should be up for the USC job. He should be up for every job from now on. Uh, Bruce Barnum, seventh year coach at Portland State, trying to drum up some enthusiasm for their home game against Western Oregon. So he goes on John Canzano's radio show in Portland and says he will buy beer for everybody who buys a ticket and shows up to the game. Not just a beer, all the beer, all game. He's buying the beer. So it's became known as Barney Beers, Bruce Barnum. They call him Barney there. Uh, and they had a nice little turnout. I think it was over 3,000 fans show up. Rainy day. Portland, shocking. Uh, but they bought a lot of beer, and they got to see Portland State win 21-7. to uh, Barney picks up the bill and then delivers a perfect quote afterwards. <laughs> as for for the next home game buy your own beer buy your own damn ticket and come watch the vikes <laughs> you'd say that too if you had to buy two thousand beers that's how many he <laughs> it's had a lot on a portland state coach's budget yes. absolutely yes. this is a nick saban yes. man yes. yes i hope some ipa and god knows there's enough of them in that area came in and kind of picked up the tab for coach barney to get a little free pub if not, yeah. they should fire their marketing interns. <laughs> 2,000 beers. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Got to be careful there. All right. I am going to say something nice about the Virginia Tech Hokies. And yes, I know they lost 27 to 21 to West Virginia. But what I love about this story is they lose and they're in such a sour mood. They're so upset with this defeat that their bus left the stadium in Morgantown and three of their athletic trainers were not on it. They were <laughs> left behind at the stadium, like home alone. <laughs> they they needed to get the bus to stop on the highway and get a police in West Virginia to drive the trainers to the bus. We don't know if they made it. This is according to Blue Gold News. They just said, screw it. We're so mad. You get left behind. And I blame the athletic trainers. Do we not know it might be their fault? <laughs> great line on reddit they said they should turn it into the little brown jug and just say if you want your trainers back come back here and beat us <laughs> otherwise they are hostages in morgantown do not let hey. them leave <laughs> you can call it the little brown iv is that uh, i wouldn't want a brown iv you now but... you now have to work for west virginia this year <laughs> until the Hokies come back <laughs> It's like almost famous where they sell the groupies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Penny Lane. I will say this on behalf of the trainers from being in the Cincinnati locker room at halftime. It was a hot day on the sideline. Those trainers worked hard. The Tim Lester, Western Michigan coach, told me that uh Caleb Elby actually missed the first series of the second half because he was getting uh he was getting treatment. His finger actually cramped like the his index finger that you throw the ball it was in one place he was so dehydrated but i was in the locker room the cincinnati trainers were rushing around to give ivs i remember vividly one of one of the young ladies was squeezing the iv bag and her muscles were bulging so she was delivering the iv with such ferocity that she was sweating 
and like it was she was getting a workout in. They were standing on stools to get them high up. Like that's those people. That's hard work, man. I uh, hats off to them. It's rare we say two nice things, but those trainers busted their tails this weekend. It was. Uh, it's cool to see the machinery because it's a triage unit at halftime of a game like that. It, it, it's uh, you, you really get an appreciation for all the machinery behind the scenes. But those trainers were working. Well, the Vodtech guys have got a thumb out on the side of the road. No love for that. I mean, do you really want to try that hard to get back to Blacksburg? I don't know. Although you're in Morgantown, so yes, in compare by comparison, I would take Blacksburg over both places. I can yeah. only imagine how much drinking was done at that game. Oh, that might have oh. been the drunkest game of the year. It might have. Might have. All right. Yeah. That's there are our probably pod. no direct roads between those two. Like, I don't think there's like a like a train shuttle that goes from one to the other and leaves every hour. Yeah, you get a bus that's like 47 stops in every holler in West Virginia. Got to go uh, to the mountain pass. Yep. Yeah, a lot of my beautiful roads, but uh, yeah. All right. That's our pod. We will be back on Tuesday to look forward oh, to Teddy. week four. And Pat is, I don't know what, he's yelling about the front. Please looking good, baby. Share us on social media. Spread the word. Don't listen to Pat. You'll be all right, Pat. Broncos will be okay. Talk to you later.